Hi, everybody. We are so lucky to have Rebecca Jacobs on the podcast today. Rebecca's personal story is an extraordinary one. She grew up with a father who was incarcerated for perpetrating a Ponzi scheme. And she talks about that, her mother's resilience and survival and the legacy of knowing that her father had perpetrated this terrible crime against, you know, friends and family. This is one of those episodes that really covers loss in all of its formats. And Rebecca is so generous. Please make sure to go to the show notes so you can read her beautiful article. And I really hope you enjoy this one. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am delighted today to have Rebecca Jacobs with me. She reached out to me because we know each other from a book club, and she knows that I'm in the grief and loss space. And what we were just talking about off mic is she wrote a gorgeous story about her experience, which she'll share, but also, you know, kind of the best reason for sharing your words and your experience is that she didn't find a lot written about it already. So Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Megan. I appreciate it. Why don't you just jump right in and and let our listeners know what your story is and what you actually literally wrote your story about. So when my mom was 37, my dad gave her a piece of paper with an address and he said, meet me for lunch. He had been acting a little bit weird. She meets him for lunch. She's never been to this building. She walks upstairs. It's not a lunch place. It's a lawyer's office. And she sees my dad and a team of lawyers and just boxes upon boxes. This is pre-internet. This is the eighties. So, you know, there's a, there's a paper trail of just boxes and boxes. And the lawyer looks at her and says, brace yourself, which those words, when you think about that, right, that's like airplane, you know, that cover yourself, brace yourself for landing and impact. And that's when she discovered my father had been a part of a massive Ponzi scheme and was being sued by all their friends, all of our family, many people. And you know, when people are speaking and you just hear, yeah, I'm sure many of, you know, when, when people get massive news, when you hear them talking, but you, yeah, your brain cuts out, your brain was just done. She does remember them saying things like you should, you have to stay with him during the trial. It's better optics. You know, if you're, if the wife and the children stay, because my brother, my sister and I were, were little, I was three. And I do often think, you know, what was I doing in that moment? Cause I, I don't know. Was I playing with Play-Doh? Was I? Yeah. What little I kid? Was, was I with my grandma? Like that just before and after to me, because that your memory isn't quite Form, but I did obviously have memories of a dad at age three and she just drove home that day. And it was just that, that moment, the floor hitting under you, what am I going to do? She's 76 now. She's, you know, an an amazing, an amazing person, which we'll, we'll get to, but just that moment where that before and after. Yeah. And a man who you, you don't know. And I think for children of embezzlers, it's very unique and, and, and it's, but it also, you know, it could apply to other people because yeah. you lose everything twice, you literally lose your house. You lose everything that it wasn't yours, but you still, you lose it. Many women go bankrupt. Women are sometimes also, I'm just saying women, it, it could be a, a woman embezzler yeah. and it's not, they can be held responsible. My mom was also sued for millions of dollars and it's just a mess. 
your life becomes a mess and it's because your dad included her, right? He, he used her her name. He um, signed our names for like my college fund was taken. My mom remembers, and this might kind of sum it up when a Jewish son is born. One of the ceremonies you do, if they're a first son is called a pinya Ben and they come and they get these little gold coins on them. And she went to the safety deposit and the gold coins from my brother were taken. Oh my God. When you're stealing from your from your children, there is no boundary. Not that you should steal from anyone, but taking those gold coins for some reason, just was really not, so nothing sad. sacred because that it wasn't even worth that much, but it was worth the, the memories and wow. And just knowing that there are no boundaries and that within a week she had moved into her parents' house who also lived, it was in Arizona at the time. How did you grow up? Like, what was your understanding of this? Cause you're so little. And so you would have had all that, like, you know, the child development stuff at that moment, you would have been able to feel the energy, but not interpret the energy. At what point were you asked to hold the consciousness of like, yeah, this is what this is? That's a great question. I don't have a before I, to me, my dad was always in jail and different people will have different experiences. Cause if you are 13, you have a right. lot more befores for me, it just always was my dad was in jail that he was released when I was 18. So my whole memory comes my whole childhood is that is that, but I always do remember just the looking older, the shoulder. I knew you couldn't tell people. Yeah. I don't know if someone told me that, or that's just what I did to protect myself. So, so while you don't have a conscious, like, oh, I just thought dad was on a business trip. You always knew he was in jail, but you can look back into your childhood and see yourself sort of covering for that story without maybe being told that was what to do. You just knew that's what we do. And I knew jail was bad. And that's another thing when you have a bad parent, you knew that is not a place where people go. Yeah. And it's only not a short time. So it is like a death because they're gone in one way. Like you don't see them again. I don't know the last time I said, saw him, you know, right there. They're like a phantom, but you know, not via a a Ouija board or they're alive, but they're a phantom. It's weird. And kids don't want to be associated with bad things. So if we know dad did a bad thing, you know, kids also, there's not a lot of delineation between are they bad or they did something bad. And I have to say in your essay, which is gorgeous, I think you show us without telling us that that's a struggle that you have to sort of come to over and over again about like, how do I feel? Right. Yeah. I think it's why I keep trying to reach out for my story because I kept it so quiet. You're trying to quote, look normal, be normal, whatever that means. But when you're little, I was the only one whose parents were divorced at my school. We were on scholarship. I knew we were different than seemingly everyone else. And I knew I couldn't tell people. Eventually I did. And I can remember telling each of my best friends who are still my best friends, but it took sort of years till you felt safe. When did, when did you begin to do that? Like, where were you? Fifth grade, which is interesting. I have a sixth grade daughter and it really could go either way. You can have... These women have held me since I was fourth, yeah. fourth grade, fifth grade, and it could have gone vastly different. So I'm, I'm really grateful to, to them. Yeah. So what was your experience with telling the truth? Because, you know, I did a podcast with someone yesterday who revealed 
Laura Perry, and she revealed child sexual abuse, which was this sort of secret in her family and lost, you know, in 24 hours, lost half of her family. So the experience of telling the truth, which we tell children, it's good to tell the truth was not her experience. You know, it's devastating for her to tell the truth. Fifth grade is a rough grade. Kids are, kids are notoriously difficult at that age, girls in particular. What was your experience with sharing this sort of precious experience with your people? I went to to summer camp and there was a girl there. Lots of Jewish people go to summer camp every summer. And so, (laughs) and this girl was just always homesick and crying and was just, just, it seemed like just a mess. And one day we were alone together and you kind of don't want to be associated with her because he was just the one who was always crying. And I don't know why we were alone. And she was, my dad's in jail. And I literally was like, because eye opening, no one had ever said that to me. I'm like looking around and I knew in that moment I could tell her. Yeah. I also knew I, I could not tell her and keep going along as I have been. Yeah. I think I used to tell people my dad was a lawyer in Arizona. That was, which is, you sure. know, but I have a story. It was a good one. And I remember being like, oh my God, this is, this is the moment where you can have someone feel less alone. And I knew that at age eight, or you can just, you know, stay quiet. And I turned to her and I did say, my dad is too. I have no memory after that. Wow. You just remember the first unburdening, the first Mm -hmm. being able to step to, it's so interesting. I just want to say this to you because I haven't thought about this. Well, actually it's due tomorrow. So I'm, I'm about to turn in my memoir and a lot of what I talk about it in the memoir is how the trauma of, of an event in my childhood really made me feel singularly isolated, even though I had all these siblings in my house. And, and that when I was in sixth grade, I was in a locker room with a girl. This isn't in the book. I, I took it out and I liked her. I thought she was really funny and I didn't have a lot of friends because my behavior had really isolated people. I had pushed a lot of people away by lying and acting out and And this girl out of nowhere, we were changing, said, my dad hits my brother. Mm. And I was so broken Mm. by the confusion of, do we hold the secrets or do we tell them? Yes. And I look back on that moment as a time that I betrayed myself because I didn't know the difference. I didn't know it. Like, this is the silence. This is what our family does. This is how we handle it is just the way it is. And this girl was like, this secret happens in my house. And I'm telling you, and I knew that my next move could be, oh my God, I can tell you too. Not about abuse. I mean, our things were not the same, but about silence and isolation. And I did not do it. I was like, okay, I I mean, what I said to her was, don't worry. I'm a good friend. I won't ever tell anyone. Right. And I've never forgotten it. I think that's the, the understanding and the places of healing. But I, I, not only did I not serve that girl well, which I don't hold myself too accountable for because I was so young, but I really betrayed the possibility. I often wonder what my life would have been like if I had been able to say, I've never told anybody about this death that happened in my childhood, that when we have the cognition that when it develops at those ages, we understand the possibilities. And I wonder if her reaching out to you was her first unburdening. Like, I know. 
you being there to hold that, like maybe you weren't supposed to do more. I don't know. You know, it's maybe that was her lovely. That's a lovely thought that takes away some of the shame I have about not being able to show up more and maybe is more generous to what we should expect children to do. I remember really the reason I I didn't want to be friends with this girl. That is also like I, in that moment, that flash, it was like, oh no, now we are going to, she's going to think we are. Yeah. She's going to bind it, bind us together. I don't want to bound with you, but I don't want to leave you on this. There, there are more of us out there. And I think it was also for me, I know it was helpful for her, but I know now as a grown up, I was like, oh, me, 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 me too. Did that begin to sort of continue for you? The, the understanding that it didn't, ha- you didn't have to hold it as a secret or was it an ebb and well, flow? Because, it was very ebb and flow because he would call it camp. We would go into the kitchen. I read about this in my article yeah. and I would come back and pretend it was my mom. My grandparents yeah. didn't talk. He was, his picture was cut out of albums, like his face. I don't know if, you might have people who like go through old albums and it's just a funny thing that people used to do. They literally used to just yeah. cut out my head. My but ex-boyfriend, I'm here. My hair looks good, but I cut out my ex-boyfriend. And my grandpa, like in my grandma on my mom's side, like all my dad's are just like bodies there, but his head, you know, so, and he would call it, they used to call from jail collect. And so if I had a sleepover one time, my friend answered and I hadn't told her that wasn't, that was high school that we were good friends, but not, you know, my childhood friend. And she answered and I thought I was going to die. And actually so funny later, I asked her, like, do you remember that? And she had no memory of it. So this memory that I was like, oh my God, I was at my sleepover and now she knows and now she's done. It didn't happen. Yeah. She, why would she remember it? It wasn't dramatic for her. It was just a wrong number. Why would you remember a wrong number from your childhood? But of course for you, because you were being inadvertently exposed in a way you hadn't chosen. Yes. Yeah. So and your dad called. He called a lot. You never knew when the calls were coming. Um, he would send presents. So there was like some like bartering system, I think. So we would get little wallets made out of cigarettes and um, portraits. Our, we would send our school portraits. So I, we always tried to send letters and like have something. And I did, you know, I'm a, a, a very liberal and like, oh, you can um, heal yourself. And he spent his time, like he was serving his time. He was sentenced 15 years, which is highly unusual. He had, you know, he had lawyer, he had good representation and it's, he had a woman judge. And my mom says, she swears, it's just because she was a woman judge. She just said, no, she gave him the highest offense for everything. Wow. And she knew, and he was not showing remorse uh, during the trial because he's actually incapable of remorse and so he's released when I was 18 and he was in Arizona at the time he's released to Chicago where we have rebuilt our life and he is very ill at this time he had MS at the end of his life and he is moving into a nursing home ironically the nursing home that I volunteer at because I'm a senior in high school and I'm bad at sports so I do all my volunteering it's a made for tv it's It's like oh my god not only you were returning you're returning to my town and and I don't want you but I also was like oh you're my dad and I went to visit and I do and there were just moments where I did finally ask why did you do it you know that's the question why yeah and he said, your mom wanted things. And oh. that, I'm so grateful he said yeah. that. And that was just the, the starting of the spark of, oh, this is never changing. 
And then he um, stole from people in the nursing home and he had had really severe MS. He couldn't use his arms. He couldn't use his legs. He was paralyzed. So you, this, the psychopathic brain and this, this manipulative brain, that's high high level, right? You cannot. Yeah. Wow. If you've ever read duped or if you read about sociopath people, Oh, I, how could I, I I have this, I'm a journalist. I'm, I have so much knowledge. They are masters at reading your emotions. The only advice, if you are, you know, if you're listening and you're like, no, you're in a narcissistic or is to run. There, yeah. there is no getting better. Yeah. And that knowledge, that knowing came later. It started when he told me your mom wanted things. That was the seed when he stole from the people in the nursing home. Yeah. That was the, oh, I was grateful. because So that feels like a different level of loss in that moment, right? That there's this confusion and maybe fantasy, right? Like I think about teenagers and, you know, teenagers can have an entire relationship with someone without that person even participating. Like I'm madly in love with this guy and I see him in the, or this girl, and I see them in the cafeteria and they were definitely sending me signals or meaning something for me. I mean, that's good. Fantasy life is good, healthy teenage life. But part of what you may have been fantasizing was the idea that he was learning from his experience, remorseful for his experience, and he is released into this home and you discover that that fantasy has to die because there is no truth to it. No, no. In fact, the opposite is true. Yeah. 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 So, so what happens for you because you're 18 at that moment. So I'm thinking also about like all the developmental things that are going on, which is that we do, regardless of whether our parents are alive or who they are, we're kind of trying to push off of them and start our own lives. What's the legacy at 18 that you take into your burgeoning adult life? Well, in some ways you're lucky because I went away to college. So no one has parents in college and way yourself. Yeah. But I do have a, another made for TV moment where when I had found, I was a sophomore and it was, it was during rush and you're supposed to be welcoming people in and cheering. And, and I walk upstairs. He always got our number. I was always unlisted. Remember like the days of being in a phone book. I was never in a phone book. And he called and I had just found out that he had stolen from the nursing home patients and, uh, and my grandpa had to pay off, go back. And, God. and just the thought of stealing from these old people and their families, like the families who would come visit, somehow he had convinced them that he was an investor, why they believed him. But again, that powerful manipulative brain. And I remember saying, all you do is destroy. All you do is destroy. We are like commanded to make the world better. There's a, a Jewish term, tikkun olam. It's like you make the world better. That's why you're here. And you actually just destroy. You're just a meteor. I mean, I said everything. You are just destructive. Mm. But I also knew it, it was for me. It was for me. It wasn't. Yes. Yeah, I did not think there was going to be an epiphany where he's like, you're right. I mean, he maybe said, I'm going to change. I was like, no, no, yeah, you're not. Sure. And I said, we're done. And that was the last call. And, and I had made peace with that goodbye, that this cannot be for me. I can be grateful that I'm alive. I think I do get a lot of creativity, hopefully in a good way from him and I could move forward, but 
the happy ending is my own happy ending. Yeah. I mean, part of what you're talking about in trauma work, we do a lot of this, which is either the perpetrator or the cause of the center of the pain cannot because they're not around or cannot because they would never participate in your unburdening yourself of your connection. And so we do these visualization exercises. We write these letters, we do role plays and, you know, we cut the cord. We say goodbye. We release them back out into the world that they live in and say, I'm not a part of that. And I'm not going to pretend that that works in one exercise or that it happens every time, but it's a bit like the victim impact statements in court, right? Which is like, I am using my own voice so that I hear myself. The little three-year-old who was the immediate victim understands I'm a grown-up now and you don't get to do this to me anymore. Yes. Yeah. And, and then when he passed away, I was 26 and mm-hmm. um, I was dating my now, my now husband and my mom called. I picked up the phone. I don't know why I picked up the phone. Maybe uh, it was a flip phone. So maybe it didn't, you know, right. like, hi mom. I'm like, oh, I'm at, you know, I'm at Mike's. And she's like, oh, sit down. And I was like, this is weird. And right. I repeated, I'm at Mike's like, keep your news to your, I'll call you in an hour. Right. Keep your news right. to your died. And I just burst into tears. Meanwhile, we've been dating, you know, for a month. So, well, but it was good. It's what it I, is. Yeah. Like, oh, well, thinking of secrets, you know, and I remember saying, I usually wait six months to tell people. I don't even know where to come up with the six months, but, you know, it wasn't like my usual right away tell, tell the yeah. guy. You're dating story. Yeah. And, and I did, I burst into tears, but then we laughed and I was like, oh, check the mattress, you know, check under the mattress for the millions that are. That he stashed away somewhere. Stashed away. I was like, oh. Um, so, so you said you burst that. into tears, but I imagine that that experience was really, I mean, we talked about this a moment ago, just like the idea of what complicated, you know, meat really means. Yes. And do we have a Shiva? Do we have like, what do we, do I go through the process that a normal griever gets to or do? Yeah. And do I tell work and now I have to tell work and then you have to go through all, yes, all the steps of and there were still friends I had never told about my dad. They knew we didn't talk. They knew we weren't close. That, that was sort of my always go-to. Oh, we're not very close. We're not very close. And, and we well, did end up having a graveside ceremony for him. Okay. My mom came. He was married before the ex. All the many of the children came. And one of my sisters read a eulogy. And she said, the greatest gift you ever gave your children was the gift of suffering. But it was a gift because we are more empathetic. Yeah. We care more. We have to, we have spent our life proving we are not like you. That's really beautiful. I mean, mm-hmm. it's hard as hell. It's like, yeah. ugh, you know, finding something gorgeous when you fall down and skin your knees. And there is something about there being other people that can sort of bear witness to the collective destruction that was your father thinking about your grandparents cutting his picture out of photos. And for some reason, that image is like, wow, that is a powerful image. It's not just one photo. It's opening the photo albums and out of your pain and anger and frustration, you know, you didn't just shred the pictures. 
cut his head out of every, you know, cut him out of every picture. When I think about grief work, I think about the instincts that there are things that we have to do and ways that we have to do them that are not about making the situation better. They're about moving me through the situation. Mm-hmm. And there's something about your relative being able to say, we have suffered name and claim. You have caused us suffering, but we will not stay underneath the umbrella of the suffering. It has made us great, great people on account of it. And that's about us, not about you. Yes. And when I, that's when I read Bernie Madoff's obituary, where it's like, he was so sorry. He was so remorseful. my whole being like, that's, it was like, no, like they're not like, that's, that's actually counter that they're, they're not remorseful. There's a certain brain that is incapable of empathy. Yeah. It's if it's a bell curve, there's over empathetic people. There's the normal, uh, you know, empathy. Yeah. And there's some where it, they, they can't actually even recognize fear in a, if you, sh- if they, 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 they don't know the word for fear, they, they cannot see it. And, you know, if that happens to be my dad. But, but Bernie Madoff's son killed himself. I know. School, right? That's such a brutal story. And, and was the guy who turned him in, right? So. And I think people always forget that. I don't because I know that that yeah. shame is so. And I think there's something else like maybe like that male shame. They have the same last name. They were, it, it, he lost twice. Like he, you lose your entire story yeah. of your of who you thought you were, you realize they completely lied about everything. So then did they lie about loving you? Everything's a lie and people want out for blood. Like when people, Oh yeah. People want to hear that the, that the wife has nothing. They, and I get that. That's a real visceral response of like righteous, right? Like you, you want the people to suffer but there are real children involved who did not know. Yeah. And sometimes the wife, maybe the wife didn't know, maybe she didn't. I I would say they're very manipulative people. Yeah. And, and the brain sometimes, yeah, there's a lot of brain. Yeah. It cannot know what it doesn't want to know. And, you know, again, I think, I think the larger, the larger point is like the legacy of all those secondary losses that happen in this sudden moment, that if you, lose a relative to a car accident, you know, in the moment you loved that person, they're dead. You are reacting in that way. What you're talking about is your mother's 37. She's got kids. She doesn't know any of this. So she loses her financial stability, her relationship. And then there's all these losses, her community. community. Yeah. The secondary losses are just incredibly brutal. And so when you're saying to your dad, you know, you just destroy, you are a force of destruction. He didn't necessarily lose those things because he did, he knew he was, you know, stealing from his friends. So the kind of friendship already had that between them. He knew that he was putting your family in a precarious position. So he never had any other idea in his head about what was there, but the secondary losses that you're describing, which are exactly what they sound, which is like the the loss after the primary loss, mm-hmm. they continue and they continue until sort of what you say is you just decide to stop being connected to him. And I, I think for, for people who, 
like who really like I think like in your memoir like the finality of the loss is so hard when you love that person it's like Joan Didion in the in the year of magical thinking she leaves the shoes out because you cannot put the shoes away because they might come home for me the finality is like the breather it's like like that check so I think for now that the the finale he he literally can't come he cannot take my social security he knows everything about me he can't open an account he can't come after my kids he can't show up and that it feels like safe like he can appear it but it's my choice to think about him and and I think the finality of uh, is the hardest part for when you love someone like my grandma my grandparents like gosh, that's, it's that they're, they're not here. And that's, I hadn't really thought about this before. So I'm so grateful for this conversation is that, and I, you know, I talk about this pretty openly with my guests is that even though I'm a grief and loss expert, I am learning how to grieve in a way that works for me because you can learn from other people's experiences, but you still have to invent your own, right? Like it's growing your own muscles. You can, you can do the exercise that someone else did, but it's not necessarily going to grow your muscles in that way. And one of the things that I've understood from people where they find a lot of relief, it comes from a modern grief theory, which is about, it's called continuing bonds. And the idea is that you continue to have a relationship with the person's memory. And so for some folks, that means that they literally like sit down and watch a baseball game with the image and idea that their dad is with them. For others, it might be, you know, they seek out guidance. And I have not had that. I have not had the like, a couple little glimmers, but I'm hopeful, right? Like I would love to feel like I was having an active conversation with my mom. I have her memorized. I know what she would say. But my understanding about this continuing bonds is that it goes deeper. It really literally had not occurred to me that that would be something that someone would not want, that the relief would be in the fact that they have gone back in their energy is back on the earth and it I will not come for me at any time. Yes. Yeah. To me, that's like the, ah, yeah, I'm free from the destructive force that yeah. is. Tell me about, tell me about. You have to work on that. Cause I do know people who are still really wrestling, right. With the destructive parent who may or may not be, you know, the earth. So you, the, I, you, you know what I mean? Like I, so, and I, and I read a lot of books. And so I know there's people who get in over their head. I do know that and who do fail. Yeah. So I don't want to say anyone who goes, you know, I read like uh, knock, knock on midnight, which is like the most beautiful book and like people working in the prison system. So I, I, you know, I'm not speaking for all, I know there's people who have incarcerated parents and they love their parents. So, but this is a, this is a different thing. So. Right. And if people don't know that book and knock at midnight, it's an unbelievably gorgeous story about injustice, right? I mean, that's that, that book about advocating for people who are in prison, there's a story of injustice. We're not, we're not talking about whether or not your person was incarcerated for a lot of people. There is no justice right. and there is no incarceration. Their perpetrator has never been called to any sort of reckoning right. and they are a force, but sort of the work remains the same, which is how do you create the boundaries for yourself so that the child in you or the younger or the more vulnerable element in you now feels protected right. by the, by the adult portion of you who knows better and different. 
in them. Like I just read someone's daughter. Also, she had a, a single mom um, and an incarcerated parent, but there's a scene. Have you, I don't know if you read that. I haven't read it. It's literally in my stack, but I haven't read it yet. Well, there's a scene where she sees these garden snakes and her grandma. And so they put, they do lighter fluid to, to get rid of the snakes and they, uh, they, they squeeze each other and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, see, you don't let go even when you're burning alive. And that made me so angry because it's like, that that is not my truth. Like I will not burn alive because you're my parent. And I, I think that is also another message we hear. It's like blood's thicker than water. Like they're your family. And yeah. So when I read that scene for me, where you're being told to burn to death and not let your family go, it's so that's not yeah. the work I've been doing for 20 years. I've been very much not holding on and not willing yeah. to burn myself for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and in trauma work, that's what we talk about. We talk about like, you know, like don't go down with someone else's ship ever. Always, always quit. If you are in a toxic relationship or in the case, I haven't read that book, but I would guess that that's a trauma bond that she's describing, which is we hold together because we cannot not hold together, right? Not because we wouldn't want to, but maybe because the work hasn't been done to separate us into individual people who can survive without a lot of what happens in trauma is that the, the dynamic that exists exists in a way that it would be difficult when the people are separated for them to feel like they could survive. And that's really difficult for the world to understand. And they say, well, if he hit you, why did you go back? And all I can say is, listen, you know, if it doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't make sense to you for a good reason. Cause that was not the space that you were in and you don't have to make sense of that. But I do think what you're describing is that human desire to survive, thrive and make the world a better place. And when you were able to identify and understood maybe from an early age that we live separate from this person for a reason, that it's at 18, you sort of name and claim that as yours. What's the legacy or, I mean, what a ridiculous question, yeah. but tell me about- I think that's the right word because you talked about Mark Madoff, you know, who, and it's, it, you know, he died by suicide. His son was sleeping next to him. It's, it's so devastating to me. The legacy is one of shame and you are embarrassed. It's your last name. It's usually very public. Like our, our address was printed. I don't know if they do that anymore, but when I read back and read some of the headlines, the, the things they print about my mom, it's just all, it, it's very fascinating. And the legacy is you have to constantly prove you are not bad. That's what I think happens to kids. I know that now that that's not my job, but you, you have to be not that. And you're super yeah. aware. And I know you, you know, other guests you've had, we're super vigilant, we're hyper yeah. aware. So I could read energy in a room because yeah. I was always, I didn't know when the phone call was going to come. So you, you have to be very aware. My dad stole while he was in jail. I have the letter. It's really actually very sort of amusing because it's someone in jail. And then my dad steals from him and he asked my mom for the money back. So it was like a thief stealing from this other thief. And it's a, it's it's an absurd letter, but we had to get an alarm because it was, it was scary. Right. Right. Because people were holding you accountable. Yes, yeah. and I did. And then my senior, my freshman year of college, I had a roommate who I'd known from a, another high school and we're sitting at dinner. And then 
very quickly, I realized that my dad has stolen from her parents and I just want to die because this was my best friend that I just made at college. And I just was so mad. It just felt like, uh, and right away, my, I know my, the roommate doesn't know what's going on, but right away I figure it out. And the mom of my roommate just looked at me and it was such grace. She said, oh my God, we always wondered what happened to that mom and the three kids. And now we know. So I was like, oh, like it was just like, oh, thank God. Because. Oh, the grace of that. Yes. You know, in that that moment where I was, you know, and and again, trying not to be find out. I was a freshman in college. I wasn't telling people. I would always be willing to tell people, but I needed to figure out if it was safe or not. And if it wasn't, I didn't. Now I'm very open, but. It, what it's making me think of is people who have, you know, famous parents for whatever they're famous for, right? Is that, you know, one of the things that it exposes you to is that people can have feeling about you that has nothing to do with you. Yes. And that's really hard thing to navigate regardless, right? I mean, you know, it, it's hard to navigate regardless of your age, but it's particularly hard to navigate when the developmental task at hand is to like become the person you're going to become. And so what I'm hearing is like, you had reason to be guarded. Yes. You know, if our dream is like, our kids are going to go and open their wings and fly in college, you know, that from the very first second you get there, you are aware that you're, you're vulnerable. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And so yeah. you're, you're, I think that is the legacy too. You're just, you, you, you have walls. Yeah. Because it's a landmine and you are trying to navigate it. Yeah. Tell me about, tell me about the process of sort of, you know, moving, making sure that this energy doesn't just land inside you and become a black rope. You know, again, the article, which I'll link so people can read it is so beautifully written. And you described it to me as this thing that just sort of came out of you is writing the tool that you found. When did you find it? Do you do other things to sort of help you with the burden of the complication of the grief? I think for me, it's always been reading and writing. And that's why I, I do listen to a lot of stories. And I do feel, you know, I keep trying. I, I do like to hear other people having maybe a more complicated grief. Yeah. And I found actually writing when I was little and was talking about a king who stole, like who stole the money and he hid the treasure. I mean, it's just, you know, and he was very bad and what a bad king. And so I I had written a story when I was little and the bad king hid and the people were so sad because no one had money and they were so sad, but then they found the money and everyone was happy. So obviously I was processing it. And I did find one time a note, you know, Becca's sad dad, you know, dad's in a bad place. Cause I don't even know how you tell really a child. Like, how do you describe that? So definitely through writing, but just very recently, because I think mm. I've always really tried to, to, you know, I have a different last name. I live in a different city. No one really, quote, has to know. I don't have to be yeah. open about it. But I, in recent years, I have been more interested. Also, the, the people are going to pass away soon. So I did reach out to his lawyer. I reached out to the lawyer who prosecuted him and to the lawyer who, who was his lawyer. And one of the lawyers is, is the one who said, brace yourself, has, has passed away. But I, I wanted to know because I wasn't, I was three when there was the trial and it was one of the longest trials Wow! Um, because it was, it, it went half day for some reason. Oh it just God. took, I think six months and, and just reading, I really wanted to reach out to the judge. Yeah. I wanted to thank her or reach out to her kids because 
I didn't feel at the time, I did not feel lucky that my dad was in jail. Yeah. But I realize now as an adult, he would have continued to steal when I was in middle school. Him being away was actually the greatest gift of my childhood. I had a, although there were moments of this sort of scary in the alarm, was pretty average and, and wonderful in the fact that he actually wasn't able to harm people until again, I was 18. So it was actually a, a gift. Yeah. To be, to be outside of his possible sphere of influence. I mean, yeah. she, you know, in, in the, that. if that's what that. protection, if that's what prison is supposed to do, it did it. It kept him away. And she, she was the reason for that because there's so, some discretion. So I'm sad. I waited. I would have liked to have contacted her and, and hear her story. Like how did she become a woman judge in Arizona yeah. in, in the, and go to law school when there weren't that many women, I think at the time. I think one of the things that's, that always intrigues me is that, you know, we say this, it's, it's written down in lots of places that grief is a lifelong process, but I think part of what talking to folks in the podcast reminds me is it's not as though like it's healthier to process your grief at 18. You can't anticipate what your grief at 30 about your dad being incarcerated and a criminal is going to be, you can't understand. It is like this lifelong sort of circling back to loss, navigating loss. And it's interesting to hear that you hadn't wanted to identify the story, but now you do. And I really trust the wisdom in that, that I think there are times where I can't claim my story because I'm still inventing myself, but I work primarily with people who have trauma that hasn't just happened. They're, you know, they are at a space where whatever, whatever needs to quiet in their life so that they can attend with, with real energy. And generally that's, what's being asked of them. And I think of writing as this really powerful, I mean, their narrative therapy, this is sort of at the root of it, like this really powerful way of claiming your story. So it doesn't have to stay inside you. You know, your intellect knows that you have written it down and that you, that you don't have to remember it all the time, that it is recorded for you. Are you taking the experiences of talking to people? Is that going to be more? I am. I I would like to, at some point, write it down. And I told my mom, she has to write it down because she has such a, she has a different angle too. And it was when I called the lawyer who had prosecuted him and everyone's now in their, in their seventies, eighties, his response was a little bit, uh, let let it lie. Like almost like I was a little girl, like, Oh, I just, why, why are you digging this up? Just, just let it. Yeah. I was like, you're not understanding. And and, and I I was like, I'm not trying to help me understand. And I, I was not articulate to help as I, I was, I, I need to know. And you, you hold the key. Yeah. Um, of, well, of and I think maybe know. that's not, maybe that's not for other people to decide, right? I think there are ways that we are reenacting trauma for ourselves. And maybe that was the intent of like, just let it lie, but that's not really for other people to decide yeah. that, you know, sometimes we are a moth to the flame of pain and we gathering all the information and saying all those things. And it's really going to do us an injustice and cause something terrible to happen. But I also know that for a lot of people, the details help, help because you lose your history. When, when there's been a series of lying, you lose all the, like, that's what Christmas was because now I know that Christmas has a backstory behind it. When he said he was running out to get milk, he was going and doing this other thing. 
And so I lose that, my actual experience, and I kind of have to rebuild it to some degree. I recently did get his prison records, which were, which I had never again gone. I didn't visit him when he was in jail and they are fascinating. He was gambling in prison. He had this secret language where um, it it looked like a combination of like Hebrew and English, like a made up language, like my son would make and his friends that he was keeping his gambling. It was not a great you know, not that there's great prisons, but it was, it was rough. And, and another thing I never was able, I couldn't ask him if I wanted to, cause he's an unreliable narrator. Right. So that's another thing that why I have to ask other people because his story, well, maybe true to him about his experiences in jail. were not necessarily true. I didn't know it was true. And it's very sort of grandiose. And again, if you read like um, Madoff when he was in prison, it was just sort of he's like, oh, I'm sort of the king of prison. And I was like, of course you are. You know, it was just uh, grandiose and, and just the no remorse. I think when you, when I could let go that there was going to be that moment that you get in a movie where it's like, I am so sorry, Rebecca. I am, I am so, when, when you, when I was able to let that go. Yeah. I was like, oh, right. Like, thank you. I actually did. He he had died. And then I got married a a year later and we said a prayer for him. There's a prayer you say when your parent can't be with you, which in normal world is very beautiful in my world, very complicated. And my husband also lost his mom when when she was very young and she was wonderful and amazing. And we actually got married in, in a Jewish ceremony, you get married under something called a chuppah, which is like a, like a roof. And we had pictures on the bottom. So we were like looking uh-huh. at, his, at, at his mom and we did it with no microphone on, but we said the prayer for her. I did say the prayer for him because the thought is it elevates your soul. And I yeah. thought, well, if yeah. someone needs elevation, it's you. So I will do it. But no one knew what was happening. It was just a very you know, it took about a minute. So again, I think that also is for me. If there is a chance to, and I say the prayer, there's a prayer you say every, every year in September. And I do say it, but it, again, it's, it's a little bit elevating the, the story and, and not. Right. It's not because he deserved it. It's because you want the elevation Yes. And you want that to be a part of who you are and yes. what you give, not because, you know, he was the king of prison or whatever right. it is that he would have assumed about himself. And part of what I'm thinking about when you're talking is, you know, we are talking about sort of what is the legacy of this. Part of the legacy is that you, you are able to provide and experience some compassion around yes. the pain of, you know, whether it's to Mark Madoff or, but an understanding that, you know, children are absolute victims of this and that they're going to carry the confusion and the complication throughout their life in the way that, you know, you are, but that you don't have to be burdened by the pain and the shame of it. Right. Like, and I, and I think of that as a progression always, that maybe the telling of the story is part of owning the story differently and making it feel different inside your body. Maybe it's a gift to other people because as you said, the story that you were looking for is not out there and not spoken about that often. And so, you know, I, th- I do think the highest level of transformation is taking your pain and allowing other people to be sheltered by it. I don't think it's necessary I don't think only valuable people do that, but I do think it is 
an extraordinary thing to be able to do. And having meaning does allow us to look and feel differently in our pain. It's less suffering. And then, you know, it has more meaning. Thank you. Yeah. What I was thinking about was two different things. One, have you listened to Danny Shapiro's Family Secrets? Yeah. Yeah. And I read her book and, um, and, and, and loved it. Yeah. She's a gorgeous writer and I won't spoil it, but her, her book inheritance does talk about discovering she's a memoirist. She's written many memoirs, but having discovered something really critical in her understanding of who her family is, she does have to kind of carry and navigate and switch up the narrative and come to understand it. And as a, a grown-up, right? And as a grown-up, absolutely. And after they've passed. So it's it, that, and um, Wild Game, I read, that meant a lot to me. Who Wild else we had? Yeah. You know, sort of uh, uh, over-the-top mother in a very different way than mine, but just when you you sort of stop being a kid and, and that relationship changes. Right, Adrian Broder's book, the Wild Game, also has that reckoning of understanding that a parent was really doing damage. To, to, for their own device and sort of indefensibly doing right. damage. And that as a child, you may not see and understand that. And as an adult who takes care of children or takes care of your childlike self, you look at that and say, that's not the way that should have gone down. That's right. just an extraordinary manipulation and for your own devices and all of those things with your own family. And you're, do you see positive elements of the legacy? Are there things that you do intentionally? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've talked about this um, with other friends. I mean, you, you never wish trauma on your children. You want their lives to be one of sunshine. And yet sometimes I think, oh, like I am who I am, obviously, because I, I, I handled a lot and I, I still can. So I, I think my children have been given just a, a beautiful, blessed life and yeah. Um, sometimes I'm like, oh, we need, we need opportunities for, for resilience. Where's the grit? Where's the grit? Yeah. yeah, Where's the grit? I mean, obviously, you know, the last 18 months have, have have been challenging for for kids and they've shouldered a lot. So for sure, they had a lot of life lessons that they've been. So yeah. And then, and sometimes, you know, I have to make sure like, I don't say like, I would have loved to have, you know, parents like us and, uh, my dad, could, you know, so it's just making sure not to put your own stuff on them because a dad in jail to them, I said in my essay, is like living on Uranus. That's just not the reality um, at all. They have such a loving. Well, it'll be so interesting because I think about, you know, we talk about transgenerational trauma in trauma work, which is just sort of like the legacy of the pain that's handed down. It sounds like you have moved so much of it through you in different ways over time. It'll be so interesting when your children are older for them to understand what it must have been like for you, right? You don't have that perspective till you have it. And one of the big regrets I have, well, it's not a regret. It's just a truth. You know, I was only coming into the space with my parents. I'm 47 and I was just really only coming into the space with them of understanding the degree to which they made sacrifices and how hard shit must have been for them. And I really liked being able to call my mom and be like, how did you even cook dinner for six kids? Like I can, I can barely get a grilled chief off the counter. Like, how did you do this? Thank you so much for doing it. And I imagine with your children, they will have an, they will have a reckoning of some kind at some point. 
And I think that's why I'm telling my mom, like, write it down now because I have called her and it is like, oh my God, you had three kids. She had to move into her parents' house. She moved us across country because detectives really were knocking on our door all hours of the day. All the friendships changed because he had stolen from everyone and stolen from the schools, stolen from it literally her whole, her whole world and had to really start over. And she also was diagnosed with MS ironically also. So she's just this amazing person who just went through boom and then later learned to love again. So even that, you know, so many people go through what she went and just pulled up the walls and she eventually, you know, had, had, you know, a new marriage and had a really beautiful life. So I have called, like, I I have called him. I don't know how how you did it. And she said, you just stretch, you just stretch. So I'm not a believer. I don't know. Maybe other people have feelings like that. The quote, you know, God only gives you what you can handle. I I don't know. Like she, she I don't think that's true. I think she handled it, but I don't think there was a God who says, Oh, you can take, you know, getting countersued, losing your house, getting a diagnosis of MS, move your kids across country, start over. God doesn't give you more than you can handle is like, I would like to live on that planet where that is the case. I think instead sort of the underbelly or the heads to those, that tails is the human spirit has an, has a capacity to shoulder and grow through trauma with enough support in ways that will knock your fucking socks off. That would the number of people that I meet that I'm like, you should be dead from what happened to you. They're not only not dead, they're like living amazing lives. They are doing and becoming, yes, their trauma still impacts them in negative ways, but their trauma also grew things like hypervigilance, which makes them really good at their job. So yeah, I don't believe for one second that God is up there like, oh, she can handle nine. He can handle four. That is, no, that's not the way we're being taken care of by whatever benevolent force is in the universe. No, it's just, as my mom said, you just stretch. There was no other, what do you, what if she, what was she going to do? You just, you just stretch and. Yeah. But I do think that there are times that where everybody has their heroic moments and some people's heroic moments are decades long. We're just stretching or just getting up or just putting on your shoes or just facing the day and not quitting you are the beacon of hope that the rest of the world should be looking towards because it's impossible and untenable that you have to do those things instead of give up and quit. And also I have a lot of respect for the way people quit, you know, not permanently. I always want people to hear that our emotions and our feelings pass, they pass through us. They change all the time. Yes. I'll I'll see that even now, sometimes with my, my friends who, you know, were were parents of teenagers and, and young kids and they're just running ragged. And I'm like, Oh, I, I saw that. That was my model of having a single, like, I, I don't do it. Like, I don't believe in like being exhausted and like doing all of it. And it, that may sound privileged, like not being exhausted. you like, I don't believe in like having to do it all by myself because I saw that. And I think if you can share, just share it, it's not supposed to just be always yeah. on, on one, because I saw that like they're choosing to just do it all, you know, and do yeah. it all. And they're exhausted. And so I sort of have a different model. Like I, I do rest. I'm okay. Reading in the middle of the day. I'm, I'm all for yeah. a life of knowing like you have, it's okay to, 
to to rest and be because that oxygen is necessary. It's it's you stretch, but also you you tend and and if and and that is an older that's an older Rebecca. That's not a, a young Rebecca. I well, I really appreciate you talking about the notion of rest, and I I follow a lot of you know black women leaders on Instagram, most of whom say a version of for a black woman to rest, it's the most rebellious and yeah. life affirming and. I think about that a lot. I think about what does rest mean? I think one of the things that we minimize sometimes is that not only is rest like symbolically important, but it means you feel differently in your body afterwards. And so when my kids are at night telling me about all the terrible things at 1030 that their mind is offering them to worry about, I almost always, I mean, if they were in here, they'd be like, mom says, you know, to sleep. And if it's still with you in the morning, we can talk about it. But when I work with women who are newly back to work after having babies, grievers who are are trying to get a project done, when I'm consulting with companies that are wondering about how to support people who've been through trauma, particularly in the pandemic, how are they bringing employees back? And what I'm saying is we just need more pauses because in the pause, if we do the pause, if we work the pause, maybe breath work, maybe yoga, maybe, and I'm not saying that in an Oprah way, like, oh, yoga is good for you. I mean, yoga is a treatment. It moves energy through your body. You feel different. sleep. Sleep is a treatment that allows our emotional experience, which I describe as sort of like little matchbox scars that run up and down the neuro pathway of your body into your brain. Sleep takes some trucks off the road. Yes. The highway feels really different. I'm surprised how many times I am reminding particularly women that rest is revolutionary and restorative. You will feel totally different. But I used to, when I am in DC, my old office used to be across from a, like an inn, a hotel. And I mean, we were on a first name basis with each other because I would go over there, call your partner at home, whomever, just tell them you're taking the rest of the day off and you're walking over there and you're going to go to sleep. And when you're ready, you can get up and go home on the train, but you will feel different. So that, that notion of we do choose how we grieve and how we manage the energy, I think is incredibly important. And I think the reminder that just because you are heavily burdened doesn't mean you have to move forward only burdened. I think that's like a holy message. I think that's really, really important. I agree. I really hope that you are going to take your time and let this continue to percolate with you and, and your skill as a writer and, and gift us with more of this story, because just talking to you about it, it's given me a lot to think about. It's created lots of feelings in my body. What we started with is what we can end with, which is it is a really important story that is not spoken of enough for the people who have this kind of disenfranchised loss. And I'm just really grateful for my listeners that they will get to listen to it and offer it to other people. I think it's just a really generous transformation of the experience that you had. I appreciate you giving me the, the space and the uh, time, especially right before your editing. Like I, I almost True. Like, is this the worst time as you're like writing this like lovely memoir of your I mean, I keep loving and I'm like the total opposite stories. It's just gonna, (laughs) I don't know. Well, 
I find that when I'm talking to people about their stories and relating to their stories, I come to know my own story better. Also in the editing process, I had people who said, you know, you talk about this differently than you write about it. And that's true of me as a, as a person in general, which is I do come to know myself better in connection with others. I am not a dig down deep and just go to the well of myself and come to know myself better. I really understand myself in the prism of other people. The last book I'll mention is Fear Factor. I don't know that book. It's so good. It's about the bell curve of empathy. It was also very life-changing for me to really help me. Okay. Another just, oh, like there, that, that there is no empathy. When, when, when someone really doesn't have empathy, it's just, you just approach everything in a different way. You could let things go. go. So that was a, that was a game changer for you. All right. I'm going to go add it to the the stack. stack. It's almost like six feet tall in my room. I know know. the the library. I just got a fine. My husband just showed me the fine. He's very, he's very worried. He's very worried about the collectors, which is so funny. I was like, Oh honey. Uh Don't worry about (laughs) the collection agency. I I come from a family that got, you know, (laughs) they were looking for six six million. These are small problems. It was like three dollars and 99 cents. No, I'll I'll return the fees. I'm not, I'm not a library stealer. I promise. I promise. (laughs) I love that. That, that, that right there is trauma healing. He was was so worried about the the, the $3 book fine, but I will return it. I know, I know people are, you know, waiting for that book. It's there. And other people can buy it at their local small bookseller here in yeah, DC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure we don't have to do therapy of why I married someone who's worried about the three dollar uh, collection fine from the library. Why? Why that sound real safe to me? I was like, oh, I'm gonna marry you. Oh, uh, you're just reminding me that inside all the stories of trauma, there is so much humor and joy oh, to be yeah. had all the time, and that's just again our you know, humanity taking oh, care yeah. of. It's also absurd. You have to laugh. It's you absurd. have to. Thank you so much. Take I'll really care. get off now. I really get off now. We'll be, in, we'll be in touch. Thank you, Rebecca. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello, my lovely hardcore listeners. If you haven't already, will you do me a favor and run over to Apple Podcasts and give me a review? Five stars is so great. It helps people find us. A written review is even better. And please reach out to me and suggest guests. I'm really trying to make sure that we cover the wide breadth of loss and the various ways in which people can teach us how to grieve. Thanks, everybody.